1: Hello and welcome to Stephanomics, the podcast that brings the global economy to you. We have two takes on ageing this week from opposite sides of the world. First from Shanghai, we hear how the Chinese Communist Party is turning to an old idea, time banking, to help them deal with the looming challenge of a fast ageing population. Then from the US, a piece on student debt which could surprise you. Sky high university fees and the heavy burden of student debt have been big issues on the campaign trail in recent US elections. But if I asked you to conjure up a mental image of the people saddled with all this debt, it probably wouldn't be a 70 or 80-something retiree living in Florida. It turns out the burden of student debt is growing fastest among the over-60s. In a few minutes, we'll hear from some of the people struggling with this and learn how government programs seem to be making it worse. We'll also hear why menu prices are quietly soaring at many of your favorite restaurants. But first, let's head to Shanghai for that report from Bloomberg economy reporter, Charlie Zhu.
2: What you heard is party music for some elderly folks in Shanghai. It's 5 p.m. on a Monday. About a dozen elderly men and women were already gathering at the leafy downtown street side park in Shanghai to get ready for one of their routines dancing in the squares, or Guangchangwu in Chinese. It's a familiar sight in cities across this vast nation, which is rapidly aging. The latest census data show the country has 260 million residents aged 60 and above more than 18% of its population. By 2050, it will be one in three. To defuse this demographic time bomb, the Chinese Communist Party is turning to a foreign invention, time banking. The brainchild of Japanese lady Taruko Mizushima in the 1970s, time banking involves people providing social services to others in exchange for time credit that the participant can use to access similar services later in life. On a recent Wednesday morning, I went to see a time bank for myself at an elderly care home in Shanghai's Changning district. (laughs) A handful of time bank volunteers, mostly retirees in their 60s or 70s, are busy working, each wearing badges bearing the logos of the time bank they work for. One was teaching an elderly neighbour how to use a stationary bike in a small gym, Another was advertising bathroom and kitchen accessories designed for seniors. For the work, the volunteers would get paid not in money but in time. They can use their accrued hours to access services from other members of the bank. One I met was Fang Di, the 76-year-old former travel services manager is one of many so-called empty nest seniors. Her husband passed away several years ago and her only child is married and lives in another part of the city. She started working for the Changning Time Bank as a part-time receptionist at a senior care house two years ago. More recently, she ventured into something slightly more challenging, teaching her fellow seniors how to download pictures on WeChat, the Chinese super app used for everything from instant messaging to payment. (laughs) Asked why she came here to do this. She said she wanted to save time dollars for her future. What's probably more important, she said, the job is a pastime for her.
3: It feels kind of lonely at home. If staying by myself for too long, I'm afraid I will get dementia. I'm really happy to hang around with other seniors.
2: Fan has accumulated eight time dollars so far, a sum that would have been much higher if not for the pandemic last year. She told me she has no plan to spend it now, and she's keen to save more for future. China launched a pilot time banking program in some cities a few years ago. The trial has since spread to about a dozen metropolises, from Beijing to Guangzhou and the financial hub of Shanghai. Shanghai is planning to extend the trial to the entire city from just a few districts. The reason to broaden the experiment is straightforward. A rapidly aging population rising cost of senior care, and a shortage of care facilities. Ning Jizhe, head of China's National Bureau of Statistics, expressed concerns about China's demographic trend last month when he announced China's latest census result at a press briefing.
4: The aging of the population is
1: further deepening. China is facing the pressure of long-term sustainable development of its population. The
2: data showed the number of Chinese people aged 60 and above has risen by 47% since 2010, while China's births have fallen to their lowest in almost six decades, putting the country's population on course to peak within the next five years. The demographic cliff edge, of course, is a problem of government's own making. After decades of imposing a heavy-handed one-child policy, China has announced its planning to raise the retirement age and allow all couples to have not two, but three children. But most urgent is strengthening the care for elderly citizens. To be sure, challenges facing time banking in China abound, from a lack of public understanding of the concept to maintaining the quality of services and securely storing time dollars. Yet some industry experts are optimistic citing the government's commitment and the widespread use of mobile phones. Among the optimists is Tsai Jin, who runs a time bank in the central Chinese city of Wuhan.
1: China has its own
2: characteristics. It usually has grand plans for a lot of things
1: with top-down designs. Under such leadership, I believe Different places will come up with different ways
2: to promote time banking. The reason for Shanghai to push forward time banking is compelling. The city has almost 6 million residents who are 60 and above, or nearly a quarter of its total population, far above China's national average and about the same as some developed countries. Set up in 2019, the Channing Time Bank has signed up more than 2,000 members, They have deposited over 2,500 hours into the bank, translating into some 55,000 RMB or $8,600 in the value of senior care services based on Shanghai's minimum wage. Only a fraction of the time deposits has been used, as most members are 50 to 70-year-old retirees who have pension income but worry about rising cost of senior care. In a recent interview, Gu Ziyuan, an official of the Shanghai Municipal Civil Affairs Bureau told us that unlike overseas time banks whose members are from various age groups, Shanghai is mainly pushing for the model of so-called young old serving the elder in light of the city's demographic structure. Due to the age of its members, the scope of the services the Chinese Time Bank provides is limited to helping with essentials, such as paying utility bills and doing the grocery shopping.
0: Mm. Time banking is a concept shipped from abroad. During the process of localization, we have to tweak it according to the needs of elderly care for a big city like Shanghai.
2: While time banking never really took off, with the strong arm of the Chinese Communist Party behind it, China just may be the country where it does. This is Charlie Drew for Bloomberg News in Shanghai.
1: Well, you heard there about the Chinese government encouraging people to save for their retirement with their time as well as their money. But in the US, older Americans are being actively encouraged to run up debts, which could make their old age considerably worse. In the last three years, student debt, that's student debt, among Americans over 62, rose by nearly 80%. In a minute, I'll talk to Bloomberg senior editor Alex Tanzi about what's driving this problem. But first, I wanted to play you this introduction by Bloomberg Quick Take producer, Madison Paglia. I should say, she's a video producer. QuickTake produces videos. and If you want to put faces to the voices you're about to hear, you can go online and search for Older Americans Frontline Student Debt Crisis. Or just embrace the magic of radio and produce the pictures for yourself.
5: What turned out to be about $30,000 student loan is now... $70,000. i will never, I'll die before. I'll, I'll never be able to pay
6: that off.
7: It's kind of like a death sentence for me. I mean, a life sentence, I should say, to pay those student debts.
6: Student loan debt in the U.S. is now at $1.7 And it's growing fastest among older Americans. There are now about 8.7 million Americans over the age of 50 who are still paying off college loans and who have seen their debts increase by about half since 2017.
7: This is my son, he graduated in 2008 from Bridgewater College with a degree in biology.
6: I didn't want
7: him to be stuck with having the debt that a lot of kids have when they get out of college, so I assumed that loan.
6: 77-year-old Frank Sizer Jr. is a retired prison warden living in Atlanta, Georgia. By the time he is 96 years old, he will finally be finished paying off his student loans.
1: The
7: Parent PLUS loan that I took out was through the Department of Education. And, of course, they then transferred everything over to Navient. I think I started in 2004. I'm still paying it, and um, according to Navient, I'll be done in 2040. My former job was head of the Atlanta City Jail, and before that, I was the warden of three different federal prisons. and. Of course, I ran the prison system in Maryland. My main source of income, of course, is my retirement income and, of course, Social Security. I sort of assumed that, like most loans, you pay it off in a reasonable amount of time, and I expected that I would have it paid off before I retired. But for a period of time while he was in school, I was just paying interest rate on the loan. So Right now, a balance of about $52,000. God knows what the original amount was, interest rate compounding and it just continued to grow. It came as quite a shock to me to find out that I'm gonna be labeled with this probably for the rest of my life. As you get older and you don't have the income that you did when you were working, it has a big effect to take about $500 a month from your retirement income to pay a student loan.
5: These are the type of buses that we
6: drove. Alma Topete used to be a school bus driver in Stockton, California. But back-to-back traffic accidents led to debilitating medical issues and ultimately put her out of a job.
5: My main objective after that was to go back to school. I was in the middle of a divorce and um, was a single parent. I took out student loans to, not only to cover my books and the classes, but to help assist in my daily bills.
6: Alma's medical issues have caused her to be in and out of work over the years. And she is currently collecting state disability.
5: At this age, I can't be the same worker that I was before. I just don't see a way out. I've been trying to pay it. I've had medical problems, loss of jobs, deaths in the family where I had to stop work. My husband got laid off, and in between times I couldn't pay the payment, so I had to ask for it. forbearance. The interest accrued, like, big time.
6: Borrowers who defer on loans can face severe consequences, such as capitalized interest, which can cause the original loan balance to skyrocket. Alma didn't complete her BA, but took enough units to earn a certificate. Today, Alma's debt has more than doubled. She and her husband have filed for bankruptcy. It's quite um,
5: disheartening, troubling, um, to be in a situation like this. I just don't understand why the government allows this to happen. For a $30,000 loan to become a $70,000 loan. I don't come from a family with a lot of money and I wanted to further my life and to provide for my family a better future. So I felt like the need to have to do it at the time. I I didn't realize it was gonna get to this monster that it's at now.
6: Both Frank and Alma are among the more than 40 million federal student loan holders who are scheduled to begin making monthly payments again on October 1st, once COVID-19 debt relief measures expire.
5: Right now, obviously with COVID-19, it's not accruing anything and I, I don't have to pay right now, but it's soon going to start again. And with me not working, I don't know how that's gonna be feasible. And unfortunately, this is not covered by bankruptcy.
7: I would like to think that loan forgiveness would happen. I'm very pessimistic that that'll happen. You know, if you can't do away with student loans, do away with the interest on those student loans because that's what really runs that cost up and burden people.
5: My hopes for this issue for myself is for me to be debt-free from it, completely. I know President Biden talked about releasing us from all debt, So, if he's not going to give us the, the blessing of canceling this student loan debt, I would hope and pray that at least he changes the law so that it could be included into a bankruptcy.
7: If education is as important as everyone make it out to be, and which I agree with, there should be a better way. The wealthy, not our issue. Well, I think the average person don't have that luxury. Quite honestly, I'd like for my son to go on and get his master's. But on, that's going to have to be on his dime.
1: (laughs) I'm joined now by one of the people who helped uncover this story uh, for Bloomberg, senior editor for the Real Economy team, and one of our best data journalists, Alex Tanzi. Alex, thanks for being on Stephanomics. Um, I should start by asking you how you came across this story. It wasn't something that I'd heard about this idea of of really much older people laden with student debt.
4: So for a number of years now, um student debt's becoming a more prominent problem in the u s. It's up to one point seven trillion. So we've written about that several times, and in the past years before there was forbearance for the pandemic, delinquencies on student debt was the highest of any consumer debt. So a lot of people were going into a lot of debt. The government wasn't getting any of this money back. So it's been an issue we've been kind of focused on, and lately we've taken a deeper look at how different parts of the population have different types of debt.
1: And the loan program for parents wanting to help their kids with their student debt... Um, that seems to be causing particular issues. So, what are the problems there? Why are people running into difficulties?
4: One of the issues there is that type of debt, that portion of student loans is rising much more rapidly than any other portion. So, a lot of parents are trying to do the best thing for their kid and incurring a lot of debt to send them to college. And the debt is not cheap, it comes with a 4%, more than a 4% origination fee. So right off the top, you're paying 4% more than everyone else. And the interest rates are over 7%.
1: That's extraordinary. Yeah,
4: there's a huge gap between the student loan interest rate and, say, the 10-year, the U.S. 10-year. Over the last dozen years, it's averaged more than 400 basis points.
1: Wow, that's 4 percentage points more expensive. And what? What is? I mean, I think we obviously have seen in the elections over the last few years in the U.S. It's been a very prominent feature: student debt. Not so much the parent debt, but the certainly student debt. And there's lots of proposals for helping people with it. But what's the politics of of helping older people with this kind of debt?
4: So in the last election, for the first time, it became a campaign issue. Um, it rose to that level of prominence overall student debt, not necessarily the parent portion. But it became, um, you know, campaign issues. So a lot of different um, politicians were running on um, forgiving everything. Biden's kind of been opposed to that so far. He hasn't really uh, staked his ground, but he said he was willing to do a smaller portion of forgiveness. But for parents in particular, you have a lot of people now at the age when they should be saving for retirement, at the age when they are retired and they're still paying student loans. So you have some people collecting Social Security, retirement income, and paying student loans, which um, <laughs> is not a good scenario.
1: <laughs> and, it's not a, and it's not a straight Democrat Republican split, is it? Uh, people feel differently on different sides of the aisle.
4: No, you know, everything is political these days in Washington, but under Trump, the fellow appointed to be in charge of student loans, he resigned and he said the whole system can't be fixed. And he recommended a universal, um, a universal forbearance, um, you know, have the government pay off all these debts. He simply said the system is broken and there's no good solution to fix it. And the country as a whole is better off just starting from scratch.
1: And it was interesting because I think that guy, he actually, and he blamed uh, the schools for the the universities for putting students in this, in this problem.
4: There's a massive misalignment in incentives. So parents and students can take out this money very easily. There's no background check of any type. Um, It's much more difficult to get a $5,000 small business loan than say a $50,000 loan to go to college. At the same time, schools have no incentive. They have no skin in the game. So they have no incentive to keep costs down. And, you know, they're happy to have more and more kids paying a lot of fees. The government, you know, gives this money out pretty easily, probably a lot easier than they should. Um, There's no type of distinction on the type of uh, college you're going to, the type of major you're studying everyone's paying the same rate and they do that for you know particular reasons but at the same time if there was a different incentive and you know if you're going to a very good school your grades are good and you're studying say a field that's in high demand you know and on the in the private market you would probably pay less in interest um at you know with the government running things everyone's paying the same and it's creating a misalignment of incentives
1: and I guess one—I mean—one reason why it's probably easier to get is it's much much harder to write off. I mean, if you the, the normal bankruptcy rules don't let you write it off the way you would be able to write off other kinds of consumer debt or indeed mortgage debt that you could just walk away from in the U.S.
4: It's extremely difficult to get it written off. Um, lately, there have been some—you know—very few cases where people have been able to get the debt uh, reduced, but for the most part. You know, you're stuck with it, and you know people are stuck with it. So last year, that the Department of Education was able to claw back five billion dollars from people's social security incomes, or tax refunds, or other parts of um, you know government income when someone wasn't paying their student loan debt.
1: That's an incredible figure. I mean, I guess the human, I mean, the human aspect of this is, and I remember learning this many years ago that. Uh, some of the different repayment rates uh, relate to how people feel about the debt. And if you, you know, you, people will try very hard to hold on to their homes and to carry on paying their mortgages. If you took a, if you did a degree and actually it didn't help you much and you didn't get a great job out of it, you don't have the same kind of association. You don't feel the same kind of determination or pride in, in, in paying it back if it hasn't worked out so well. So it's, I think there's, there's an element of of psychology around this, but in the, in the UK you can write, it's written off after 30 years student debt. I wonder whether, do you think that might make sense in the US too?
4: I think it would definitely make sense, especially for older people or people that become disabled. One issue is people's incomes and their lives are not always a straight line. People get divorced, people have health problems, people have a death in the family, so their incomes fluctuate, they lose their jobs. So it's difficult to always pay the same amount every month with student debt. And for some people, they owe more than $200,000. So it can be quite a significant amount every month that has to go out. Also, the St. Louis Fed has done some studies on the outcomes for college graduates. And for many that don't necessarily go to the best school and don't necessarily have the best grades, there's not much benefit to go to college. It's not much better than a high school degree. So there is, um, there is, like you're saying, there's a lot of problems with people feeling good about getting this debt if they can't find a job that helps them pay for it.
1: That is a massive investment with not a very high return. Well, Alex Tanzi, thank you so much for talking us through it.
4: Thank you. Thank you very much.
0: The countdown has begun from May 14th to 16th
1: And in case you hadn't noticed, inflation is back. The headline rate of inflation in the US hit 5% last month. That's the highest since 2008. We've talked before on this podcast about rising commodity prices and the record cost of shipping. Now it's diapers, or nappies, and restaurant meals. Diaper banks have seen a jump in demand in many US states, as low-income families deal with the consequences of price hikes by the two companies which dominate the US diaper market, P&G, And Kimberly Clark. And now you can finally go to your local restaurant. You're probably finding that prices have gone up there as well. US Economy reporter Olivia Rockman has more on that last story. Olivia, tell me why restaurant chains are feeling the strain and needing to hike prices.
3: On one side, they're getting a lot of pressure from commodities. So that could be chicken, beef, even shipping costs for their products. Uh, Chicken, for example, is at a decade's high in terms of price increases. And on the other hand, they're being hit with with wage increases that they're having to take in order to attract workers because in the U.S. we've had a lot of generous unemployment benefits, which is not motivating many people to return to the workforce. And so it's really on every end of their cost cycle that they're facing these pressures and then in turn having to raise prices.
1: Yeah, and I guess it's always worth remembering when people talk about the fear of inflation. I mean, there's lots of things to worry about inflation and often it does affect poor people the most because they haven't uh, necessarily got wage increases rising in line with inflation. But on the other hand, uh, you know, some of this inflation is about increasing people's incomes, people getting paid more um, to work in restaurants uh, and other places. And w- w- what companies are we seeing increased prices and, and what what kind of increase are we seeing?
3: The first big company that we saw do this was chipotle a mexican restaurant chain here in the u.s and they had taken a wage increase a couple of months ago and then shortly after announced that they were raising their prices about four percent we saw the same with cracker barrel another restaurant chain mcdonald's has talked about needing to take price increases soon because of wage increases and we're hearing it from small businesses too
1: and they, they do come up with a few sneaky ways of, of hiding this from us. You don't, you don't necessarily know that the price has gone up.
3: Yes, yeah, so companies in their earnings calls will say they're looking at their pricing strategy or they're going to take pricing or they're looking at their price calculation and they won't overtly say that they're increasing prices. And so it is sort of a game that they're playing between their investors and their customers.
1: But if you're a customer, you're going to notice. I mean, are they, are they also trying to shrink the portion sizes or do some of I know that that often happens with uh, consumer products. You find that your favorite chocolate bar is actually 20% smaller than it was a few years ago.
3: Yeah, we heard from Wingstop, a chicken company, that they're starting to use every part of the chicken to make their products rather than just the legs or just the breasts that they used to use. So there are some creative costs manipulations going on as well. I'm
1: surprised that they wanted to publicize that. It doesn't make me want to jump in, but maybe that's <laughs> no, it's good. It's, it's good on environmental grounds. You should use uh, every last drop. Thanks very much, Olivia. Thank you. That's it for Stephanomics this week. I'll be back next week with a special episode on the future of the global economy, featuring a discussion with former US Treasury Secretary Larry Summers and big-name investor Ray Dalio. So tune in for that and follow At Economics on Twitter to hear more economic news and analysis from Bloomberg. This episode was produced by Magnus Hendrickson. The report from China was written and reported by Charlie Zhu, Lin Zhu, and Daniela Wei. With special thanks to Tong Dong, Doug Huang, Madison Paglia, Alex Tanzi, and Olivia Rockman. Mike Sasso is the executive producer of Stephanomics and the head of Bloomberg Podcasts is Francesca
3: Levy.